This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, February 24th, 2018. Did you hear that pause? I bet you were just waiting for me to make a mistake in the year. I told you that. Haven't I, John? That's my, like, number one obsession when I'm doing that introduction is uh, getting the year wrong. You have to get it right. You'd be you'd live through eternal shame if you messed it up even once. Absolute As other infamy. I swear I turned that off, but apparently my off turning. Well, there it goes. There's my absolute utter infamy for today. All right, lucky me. So, um, before we introduce our awesome and illustrious guest, uh, do you have any updates for the poor, poor people you call your players? Oh boy, uh, I've actually. I, I hope that they're not listening to this. Uh, this now, I, I'm actually working on the plans for my next gaming experiment. I've got right in front of me. I've got printouts of D and D Basic, D and D Expert, along with uh, the legendary B2 Keep on the Borderlands. Uh, I've I've decided that that 5th edition is not going to be the type of game I run. And uh, and I'm, I'm going to have to go all the way back to 1981. Did I ever tell you exactly my experience with Keep on the Borderlands? Oh, I don't think you have. Uh, we set up this scenario, and I wandered around for in the game a couple of weeks and couldn't find anything, nothing. Like, no NPCs to talk to, no sign of what we were supposed to be doing. So I just turned to the rest of the players, pulled out the big map, and we were playing the Forgotten Realms. And we were all the way at one end of the Forgotten Realms, and I pointed at a big city on the exact opposite end of the Forgotten Realms and said, I want to go there, and we just left. Quote <laughs> <laughs> my friend Mark, we decided not to go to the Tower of Pain and instead went back to the inn. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, I don't know if you can help avoid that, but man, I was frustrated. I don't even know how that module is supposed to begin. I mean, I have no idea, like, where you're supposed to go, what clues are supposed to leave you there. All I know is we wandered around. The game master said, well, there's a dungeon out there. And we wandered around, and there was nothing, 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 nothing. And I'm like, well, forget this. I'm out. So. Um. My week has been varied and interesting in so many different ways. Um, I picked up a ban on Twitter yesterday. I think I told you about that. Yeah, you mentioned that. So Someone uh, did the old uh, rummaging through the archives, you said? Three years ago, literally three years ago, February 1st, 2015, I sent out a tweet uh, making a joke with someone in a fake flame war. It was the... Uh, Pineapple pizza versus no pineapple pizza flame war we held for one weekend. And in my joke tweet contained some harsh language because it was to a friend and it was joking. Now, here's the thing. My friend has since left Twitter or changed their account name. So this tweet isn't connected to anything or anyone. 
There's no antecedent tweet. There's no response to it. Nobody said a word or complained. Nobody reported it at the time. So the only way you could be harassed by this tweet, you could be insulted by this tweet, is if you literally went and searched my timeline for offensive phrases to be offended by, then found it, then were offended, then claimed, uh, complained about it to Twitter. The grief. But I don't think that's what happened. I think a Twitter employee saw some of my tweets that have been reported by leftists and decided to go out and find evidence to get me taken off Twitter as much as they could. Um, and the earliest evidence they could find, the, the, the most evidence they could find, they had to go back three years. So in the last three years, I haven't said anything to get me in trouble with Twitter. And the reason why I think it was an employee is because three of my other accounts also got hit with problems at the exact same time. The Geek Gab Twitter account was locked out uh, for several hours until I, for about 12 hours until I could go back in and they demanded a phone number. And one of my other accounts is still locked out because they won't accept my phone number. So they hit like four of my accounts all at the same time. Um, yeah, that, that sounds like either somebody went through and deliberately, uh, you know, hit, you know, shooting for you and sent complaints or someone at Twitter was the person doing the, the complaining. Two of these accounts have no public connection to me at all. Nobody knows about them. I mean, nobody. I've literally told no one about them. Um, and so they're there just in case uh, I got banned for no good reason. And I would have a way to con contact people and let them know where they could get a hold of me. So somebody... That sounds who, like someone on the inside. Yeah. It, it just... It, to me, it sounded like, um, you know, an inside... Uh, inside man, someone at Twitter themselves, who we know because, you know, they released all those videos earlier uh, or a few, what, a month ago or so about Twitter employees talking about how they love banning people, yada, yada, yada. So it it, it isn't shocking, but uh, my response when I got back on Twitter today was to tweet more and tweet more obnoxiously, just not, I would note, using any language that would either be considered vulgarity, profanity, or racist, sexist, or homophobic, but being very, very um, assertive in how I phrased my tweets. I was not soft playing my tweets today. That was my response to them trying to get me taken down, is to come back twice as hard. They should have just left well enough alone. By the way, folks, if you are wondering, the person who we've uh, been talking to, our guest today is L. Jaggi Lamplighter-Wright, author of several books uh, involved, uh, author of several, several short stories, which we will talk about on the show today, as well as being the spouse, the lovely and talented spouse of the cruel and domineering Mr. John C. Wright. Right. <laughs> Former lawyer, former newspaper man. I'm just to tell you he gave me permission to speak to you today. 
well-known scoundrel, if you couldn't tell. He is a newspaper man and a lawyer and a science fiction writer, therefore, obviously, morally irredeemable. On the other hand, Mrs. LJG Lamplighter Wright is lovely and gracious and a light in his dark life. And we welcome her to the show. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> John is trying to make more funny comments in the background, which I'm sure are funny, but it's hard to listen to him and you at the same time. Thank you, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. It's always an honor. Yeah, glad to have you on. And uh, con congratulations. I'm going to bring it up right away. Congratulations on your Ribbit Award. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> John Jerry in the background. I really, you know, I once years ago had a kind of almost like a vision that I would never win an award. So I've been proved wrong. That vision is not to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I really did not expect to win. So I was really a, a, a delightful surprise. And, you know, I was talking to someone about it. It's like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's only a relatively small group of people. And then I realized, well, yeah, but, you know, there's I know plenty of other people who know the same small group of people and didn't win. So I, I decided to be truly honored by, by this uh, prestigious award. And I was so amused that uh, Megan Fox, when she won, immediately updated her description of her, you know, her little bio to, you know, having won a, a major prestigious award or something like that, award-winning uh, uh, reporter. I think the Ribbit Awards are the second most uh, prestigious awards in science fiction and fantasy now. Yeah. Second most. Yeah, second after the most. Dragon. And I got nominated for a Dragon this year. So, you know, I, it's been a good year for me. It's really surprising and delightful. And I'm, I'm overjoyed. Uh, it's just, you know, it, 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 it makes some of the work that goes into all this we we writers do a lot of work and there's and you know unless you really kind of either really know your stuff like nick cole or you're really lucky there's not a lot of return for it i, I haven't done the math recently but at, at one point and it's not changed very much i i was making about two thousand dollars a year at this at this gig <laughs> i can tell you i work full-time at it sometimes when i'm not momming uh, so, you know, to, to know that somebody is enjoying what we're doing, even if it's not a lot of people, uh, you know, from a, you know, grand scale of things, it's just delightful. It, it's really a wonderful thing. And it was so charming of John Del Rose to organize the whole thing and, you know, get together, you know, the, the, the nominations and then do the award ceremony. And, you know, I was, the whole thing was a lot of fun. It was. I was watching along in the audience, hanging out in chat, and uh, you mentioned Megan Fox. She was in chat the whole time. You know, she was really excited about the whole thing, even before she was. Uh, you know, she was. She won, and and we were just having a lot of fun with the whole show. She's just. She's just delightful and so brave. I've been really impressed at a couple of the articles she wrote, where even the people at PJ Media were not. Or you know, were, were balking, and she went right out and did whatever it was, and I'm like, you know that. That's the kind of, when I was young, I imagined being that kind of reporter. So she's like a hero to me. Uh, what I think is, is great about the, uh, the recognition that you got is that you were introduced to me and, and a lot of people on the show by Brian Niemeyer, a good, a, a dearly departed friend of the show. Yeah. 
and, and so I, I've always known you as an editor. So it was it was great to hear you get recognition for a writer as a writer. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, when I graduated from college. I had to decide, did I want to go into editing or did I want to try to work for my dad? And he would give me two, two hours of every day to write. And I spent the whole summer troubling over this and I ended up working for my dad, though I did work in publishing as a grunt uh, on and off uh, for uh, maybe a year altogether in, in the New York area. Uh, so I learned a lot about it, which was great. But I still had in the background this idea that I'd really like to do the editing because I had... Uh, step back a little bit. I, I hope you don't mind if I tell my how I became, got into editing story. But when I was young and I would read books, I didn't have any critical ability to dissect them. You know, it's like I just read them and I loved them or I didn't love them, but I, I couldn't tell why. And when I went away to college, I went to St. John's College, which is all the great books of Western uh, literature. And that's where I met John. And the reason I decided to pick that college was I thought, well, if I want to write, I want to know what the other great writers have written. I want to see what they do. So I, I eventually developed the ability to look at stories and get a sense of, you know, I wanted to know what made them work, what made one good, what made one bad. And one day I realized that everything, you know, you read a book and you're tra if it's a good book, you're just transported to another galaxy far, far away, or to the future, or the past, or to, you know, one of my favorite books is actually War and Peace, or to Russia when they were fighting Napoleon. And, but all that, all that magic, all that wonder, all that depth of character that the really great authors bring across, it's all just words on a page. And I realized if I can figure out which words on the page are giving me the effect that I like or don't like, I, you know, I can kind of sense how this is being done. And uh, so I began working on that. It took me many years to get to the point where I was, you know, of any use to anybody. But I would, you know, kind of practice on John. I would, you know, he would read something and I would sit there for hours thinking, okay, well, that was really good. But there's this one thing that bothers me about it. What about it is, you know, why is that thing bothering me? And I would try to get to the point where I could go back to John and say, hey, this particular line or this character, this paragraph is what doesn't seem to be working. And during the same period, I had a blog and I, I had something we called Wright's Writing Corner where I, I would write articles about writing. And I would try to pick some, I had a little list of uh, writing tips that I'd written for myself. Whenever I figured out a, a rule of writing, I wrote a little writing tip. So I wrote articles about each of the writing tips. And it's still available on my, on my blog. Occasionally someone reads it and says they enjoyed it. But eventually this all led up to me having a bit of a talent for editing. And so I finally got to do the editing that I had wanted to do back when I was young and would have been no good at it. <laughs> and Brian is, is, you know, one of my, I think one of my star uh, authors and such an interesting and amazing background and richness of thought. It just, whenever I, I read his, his stuff in, the, in that series, I'm just, you know, really impressed with how, how it's quite different. From other things, you know, a lot of things you pick up, they're just like everything else. But it, is, it reminds me a bit of Zelazny, and you know, it reminds me a little bit of, of of other things. But it's really its own world, its own idea. It's not the thing you see everywhere else. And uh, one of the fun things about working with him was finding ways to, as an editor, I, what I try to do is go in, find the vision of the author, and then help them bring that so that it's reaching the reader. 
because a lot of the, the books that you read nowadays, like if I read indie books, I often sit there and I go, well, I got to the end of this and I think I understand what you were trying to say. I don't say it to them, I'm just thinking in my head. Uh, but it's not, it didn't get to me, you know. So my, my hope when I work with, uh, with uh, authors is to help find those ideas that they have that make the story worth writing and put them so the reader gets it so they can both be in the same wonderful world together. So that's my, that's my little how I became an editor blurb. But I was a writer way before that. I, I've been a writer the whole time, and I, I used to be a tour writer. Uh, I had a series out with tour, and in the midst of my series being out, they fired my editor over some charges that turned out to be untrue, and eventually I, I just took my books back because they, it was not, I was not, <laughs> the new editor they gave me was on the other side of Sad Puppies and was at, at odds with my husband and it just wasn't a good situation. So that series is now with uh, Kevin Anderson, Kevin J. Anderson's uh, Wordfire Publishing. Kevin J. Anderson is one of the, you know, he's a huge author out there. He's got tons and tons of tie-ins and books of his own. He writes really funny zombie series. And he started a, a publishing company, I think partially to just to support people's backlists that weren't out and available right now. Um, and uh, so my, my Prosper books, my original series, is with them. And my current series I'm writing, The Books of Unexpected Enlightenment, are, is with the Wisecrafts Publishing, which is the YA part of Superverse Press. So that's a brief sum up. <laughs> Maybe not as brief as it could have been, sorry. What? No, this is the geek gab. We gab for as long as, as we need oh, to. Excellent. Well, I won't worry then. <laughs> Also, that was absolutely delightful because I I haven't I didn't know any of that. That was really that was great to know. Um, Adam Simpson in the chat actually mentions that he's he's also enjoying your series of posts on fairy tales. I've been wanting to write that for years. I'm so glad someone enjoys it. I've been wanting to write that for years, and and I what I wrote the notes that came to me all at once. I think like 2014, and I lost them. To this day, we don't know where they went. I think that somehow maybe they hadn't been properly backed up when our computer crashed. And so when we downloaded from Carbonite again, that one file wasn't there or something. So I put it off for a while because I was kind of frozen because I couldn't remember what I had written in the, you know, my first version. But more recently, I finally kind of got together and decided I had to take another stab at it, you know. And uh, it has two more parts. It's, it's a five-part article. And I'm so glad I finally have a chance to do it because it's – something I really feel is really, you know, important. And it, it finally kind of came together exactly, you know, what it was I, I wanted to say about it. So it's really wonderful to have somebody actually reading it and enjoying it. Cool. Hey, Daddy Warpig, do you got that, that alert sorted out? No. And I'll tell you what's strange. I have literally turned the phone off three times. Um, I mean, like, actually powered it off three times. All I can figure is that there's a new feature in the new iPhone that if you have an alert set, it will boot up your phone and throw <laughs> out the alert because normally I just switched my dang phone off and there's no yeah. problem. It happened to I, me in church the other day. I didn't realize that alerts, you know, I, I had put it on, you know, no sound, one little level of vibrate and apparently alerts went anyway. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> If I had left the phone on, I would expect an alert to go off at some yeah. point. But if you physically 
powered down the phone, uh, I would have thought, and, and up until now, I would have thought that because that had been the case. Right. That it would not be going off. But a, a slightly related short aside, one of my favorite short stories, I'm afraid I can't remember the exact name, but it's called something like Loki 7916 or something like that. It's by, it's by Roger Zelazny. And it's a story about how the guy's PC, it was written, you know, some time ago, so it was real pretty, like a Commodore or something, is slowly taking over his life and, you know, like answering his mail, taking care of his bills, buying itself new parts. And at some point, the guy catches on and he throws the thing out in the in the garage and somehow it manages to wake up and start doing it again. And I remember that every time you're like, you know, something won't turn off. I think, ah, oh, we're, we're, we're breath away from the Loki computer running our lives. <laughs> For some reason, it seems much more realistic to me than Skynet. I mean, Skynet is this giant thing, yeah, you know, but this little, like, our phone taking over our life and, and doing things for us seems to me a lot more likely to happen to me. I, I, love, I love those stories because they have to do something about the obvious solution in, in one of those the, the computer has to be possessed or something because <laughs> the, the obvious solution is you just go over and, and unplug it. Yeah, they, exactly. They even, they even did that in an X-Files episode. Actually, I think it was written by William Gibson where, where they just cut all the power. to. It was like this supercomputer running a, a virtual reality simulation run by an AI or something. And the, and the computer, you know, the lights flip back on after they unplug everything. And you can hear the collective TV audience around the country just groaning. Yep. <laughs> it's so true. And things are, are a little bit more that way nowadays because a lot of things, I mean, I, we have certain devices that don't even seem to have an on-off switch anymore, you know. I guess it still works to unplug them if they don't have a battery. But it's just, I don't know, it's a little bit creepy. And, um, and and the real life the real life science fiction where the cameras if you're just using the device the phone or the laptop or whatever you forget that the the camera's there and and you're not actively yeah. using it but it could be recording. I was thinking about that yesterday because I went to Staples to scan something because our scanner isn't working and it, as I when I was young I used to do a lot of work with copy machines like for my dad. I'd go out and get things copied, and I knew how to take, kind of take them apart a little bit and fix things a little bit. And I used to kind of, like, for almost for fun, go through this little paranoid scenario where I would imagine that somebody was spying on people by, or maybe, like, making up that he could put it in a story or something, by memorizing what it was they put through the, the, the copy machine. Of course, back then it was just a camera. There was no real way to do that. But nowadays, where you put your papers in, yesterday I had to put my papers in. Then it tells me how much it's going to cost after it's memorized them, and then I decide whether I'm going to pay for it. I'm like, it would be really easy to keep, to keep people's information now. You know, it's actually going into memory and being stored there. So, oh, yeah. And, and, and who knows that it isn't being shipped off to some database. All right, I'll take the tinfoil hat off, but still. Well, I, my, uh, I think it was my husband who used to work at a place where that had filled the UP uh, the little drive, uh, you know, you stick in your flash drive, UBS uh, things with uh, UBS, that's what I'm looking for, with lead, because a lot of the flash drives came from China and had software hidden on them that would report back to China whatever was put on the drive. No matter how many times they told people, don't bring drives in, people did it. 
So they actually physically filled in all the spots so nobody could stick a drive into the computer. I love it. So. And I, and I mean, and it was the, of course, the Echo and the, the uh, Alexa and all that are uh, even more that way, you know, where they could just be sitting there listening to everything you say. I mean, over on top of buying things when you don't want it to. <laughs> People actually buy those things and put them in their houses. It's amazing to me. Like, even, even if it's not the NSA or whatever, whatever nefarious government organization listening to you, it's Amazon and Google listening to you nonstop all day. Trying to pick up code words for sending you ads and stuff. You know? Yeah, and that's it. Well, all that's not so bad for getting ads. They're it, just trying to figure out ads. how to sell you more things. They're just right. trying to figure out how to get more of your money. Why would you want that? But even that is not, you know, it's, it's annoying, but it's not terrible. But there's not, there's only a hair's breadth between that and, you know, what what happened to Daddy Warpig yesterday with, with Twitter, where they start harassing people or turning the information over to the government or turning the information over to, to a private person who has some bad intent, you know. So it really, it really is... Uh, I don't know, you, you, you're taking a, a leap of faith in a direction that, that seems to me unnecessary <laughs> you get one of those things. My favorite story about those things was they told on the news a story of a little girl who said, Alexa, buy me a dollhouse. And a dollhouse arrived, you know, $150 dollhouse to the consternation of the parents. And all around the country, people who had their little Alexa device next to their TV or in the same room as their TV also got dollhouses. <laughs> That's great. That actually reminds me of a similar story when the Xbox One came out and they had the Kinect system, which had lots of voice commands. And you would, uh, the microphone would be listening when the device was off, and if you said Xbox on, it would turn on. And when you were done for the done playing, you would say Xbox off. Well, someone would join Call of Duty games, and their username was. Xbox off. <laughs> and so you'd have these, and you can find a clip of this uh, on YouTube. There's, there's a, a, a cut of all these players who are, they're, you know, they're on their headsets and they're playing Call of Duty. And, and all of a sudden the voice comes, you hear some kids say, what's with this guy named Xbox off? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and he cuts off. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so trolly. <laughs> It's really funny, but horrible. It's one of those things that's really funny when you hear about it, but if I was playing the game, I would probably be really, really sad. Smashed yeah. controller. Yeah, no, that's funny. That's sad, but funny. Um, by the way, to people listening, just in case, um, just in case you're wondering about the fairy, the uh, series of fairy tale posts on uh, Jaggi's blog, I've included a link to the blog in the description of the video. And if you're wondering about her current series of books, the Rachel Griffin uh, books, those uh, a link to that series on Amazon is also in the description of the video. And if you're thinking about her adult-oriented series, Prospero's Children, a link to that series is, and, and hold on because this might surprise you, it's in the description of the video. <laughs> 
<laughs> you are thorough, sir. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's really nice of you. Um, by the way, I am and currently... I'm favorite both series that they're fun. I, I try to make them funny and have moments of wonder. That's my kind of my thing with writing. So if you like that kind of thing, you might enjoy them. But you also have a book that on Amazon you're uncredited with, um, but that you actually helped edit the uh, Venus anthology. Yeah, I will be credited eventually. Amazon only lets you put up 10 people at first, so we have like 20 people involved, and we're slowly trying to add the other names. Well, I'll get on there, but I am the editor, and I have a short story in the Venus, uh, the Planetary Venus anthology, for anybody who's not familiar. Uh, Superversive Press is putting out a series of planetary anthologies, one for each planet, plus Luna and Soul, and uh, I was... Uh, uh, A.M. Freeman and I were the editors for the Venus one, which came out for Valentine's Day. And it has 20 uh, delightful stories, very different, like some are fantasy, some are science fiction, some are, you know, funny, some are serious, uh, that involve either the planet or the goddess. Mine has the planet and the goddess, and mine is a sequel to Prosperous Children. So if you uh, want to read Prosperous Children, you might skip my story until you've done so. But if you're not, you know, if, if you're not, go ahead and enjoy it. Uh, and it, it is my, my main character. Uh, I don't even want to say what, what she's doing because it gives away something from the story. But anyway, it was a lot of fun to write, and uh, we had a lot of fun editing it. And so far, the uh, you know it's been a lot of interest. You know, we've got some good writers in for these things, so I'm hoping that the readers will enjoy them. And uh, but that's why my name's not on it yet. It, it, it's just a, a, a technical thing, and we'll we'll get it hopefully this week. We'll get it sorted out. Coincidentally. Uh, a link to Planetary Venus the Anthology has appeared. <laughs> is in the description of the video. Thank you. You can also check that out. Um, Excellent. I am in the process of reading Rachel Griffin, uh, your Rachel Griffin stories, and I want to get this straight because um, I want to get my involvement in this straight because it is... Uh, it is almost but not quite embarrassing. And, and I did this to Larry Correa, too. So you should know this is not uh, unusual. Um, I bought the first book of the Rachel Griffin series in July of 2016. So that was, you know, a year and a half ago. I bought the second one a year ago. And up until this week, when I went to prepare for the show and I started reading the books, I hadn't read either of them. Now, the, I, uh, I have books in my queue I've been waiting to read for over a decade that I just keep on having to bump because other things come up. So that's not a, a personal commentary. I completely understand because while I love stories, I have very, very being a writer and a mom, I have very little reading time. So I do. I, I'm grateful someone buys it. If they read it, I'm even more grateful. But I don't expect them to read it unless it fits in the schedule because you know we were all we we're all busy folks. The one story I, of yours I remember the most, um, and again, no insult to the Rachel Griffin series, but I, I liked it a lot, was a story you published in the Sci-Fi Journal uh, magazine. 
Um, and this would have been a, a while back, and I, I did not look at uh, the issue, um, but it was sort of urban fantasy, and I got the feeling it might have been set in... Um, in the... Uh, it involved fairy pirates who stole cars? Yes. Yes. Yes, that is... that. Not only is that in the... Uh, uh, same background as the Prospera books, uh, though only barely, one of the characters is from there, but it is currently available for free in its own little uh, downloadable ebook done by my, my wonderful typesetter, uh, Jolly Solomon, Jolly Solomon. Uh, so I put the link here in case you want to share it with anybody. It's, uh, it's just, I mean, obviously they can go get the sci-fi journal. I'm sure that, you know, sci-fi journal would be happy if they did. But uh, if they want just for free that little story, it's uh, it's there. And uh, it's funny because uh, when I wrote that story, I, I had to write a story for an anthology that I was assistant editor with, and I, and I didn't have anything in mind. And I came up with that idea, and I started crying. And I thought, if this makes me cry, I should write it. And I thought, everyone will hate this story. And so I was kind of surprised when I did write it and nobody hated it. But recently I found out that uh, there have been some people who have hated it. So I, I felt justified <laughs> in my <laughs> But I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. And it really was, I think, one of the, the more uh, kind of... I know. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I also thought it was one of my, my best things. So. I thought it was a very, very interesting and delightful story, and I wanted to um, spend more time with the main character. So that's a, that's a mark of a great story when you're done with it. Yeah. Is you. The, uh, the main character is, she's only in that story, but the detective, the supernatural detective, is the psychic in the, in the other series. The... Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And the first time it came out, it got severely cut, and a lot of the qualities of the main character were not included. And so I was so glad for a chance to put it out uh, in a longer version in Sci-Fi Journal. And uh, this version that's available now for free is uh, kind of the complete version of the whole thing, the way I originally you know, envisioned it before it had gotten shortened. It's, appeared, it's actually appeared in four different things. It's in the original uh, Badass Furies book that it was written for, uh, it's in a book called Mystic Orbits 2016, which is a collection of fantasy and science fiction stories written by Christians. It's not Christian fantasy or science fiction, it's just the authors happen to be Christian. It's in my own little anthology that I have called In the Lamplight, uh, and it's in the Sci-Fi Journal. So, th so that story's been, I think, it's been published more than anything else that I've written. It's appeared in more places. Um, I had a question, uh, then this, this was, uh, it is neither here nor there, but it's something I was kind of curious about. Um, how do the Moth family in your Rachel Griffin books relate to the Moth family in John's, uh, They are series? the same Moth family, but they're not on the same world. So um, I'll tell you the story of that. Uh, many years ago, I designed a Harry Potter role-playing game for my son, who was like seven at the time. And this game was adopted by our friend Mark Whipple, who's the person who 
uh, made up the background and the overlining plot for the Rachel Griffin that the Rachel Griffin books are based on, and uh, wrote some of the dialogue. Um, and the way I did it was that I tried to pick the things that were important in Harry Potter and make them stats. So fame was a stat, fortune was a stat, familiar was a stat, you could have a good one or a bad one, and family was a stat. We also had some, there was also, you know, other stats related to your magic and things like that. But I also had something called a star, and you could put your star in one area, and wherever you put your star, you were extra special in that area. And each of the different stats, which I think there's nine, uh, has a special thing you get with your star. For instance, Rachel Griffin had her star in uh, the scholarly uh, abilities, and, and what you got for your star was perfect memory, so that's how she got that. But uh, one day, when I was running a version of this game, set in the Rachel Griffin background for fun for John, he said, what do I get if I put my star in family? And, you know, my idea for the family stat had been, you know, with a, with a one or a zero, you're Harry Potter. With a zero, you have no family. With a one, you're Harry Potter. Your family sucks. And with, you know, with a eight or something, you're, or nine, you're a Weasley, and, and you have a lot of brothers and sisters in school supporting you. He said, what do I get if I put my star in it? And I said, you're a member of, of, of the largest family in the world. And he was playing a character named Dusty Moth. So I said, and, and we'd already said, okay, you're descended from Moth, you know, the, the, from uh, Shakespeare's... Uh... Yeah, Dusty Moth is, Moth is a fairy cowboy from Uncanny Valley, and he, he will, he's younger than Rachel, so he'll appear in, in Nevada. Uh, he will appear in some later book, but some of his elder siblings, I think, have possibly made it into the books. But anyway, so we decided the Moth family was interdimensional, and they were, and, and if you remember the Moth family... No matter where you went, you could get help from the Moth family. Uh, and Zoe Forrest is also indirectly related to the Moth family, so, so she stayed with some of the stranger. There's a part in book one where she mentioned some of the weirder Moth relatives that she stayed with. Um, but that's where the Moth family came from. So the Moths in John's book, the Moths in my book, and Moths that we've occasionally stuck in other places are all related, but in some worlds the moths are kind of on top, in other worlds they're not so much. So <laughs> the relationship you have with the family might be different from book to book, but if the character could make it into the other book, the, the same, the moths would take them in. So, hope that answers your question. That just warms my heart. The more things come out of your uh, local RPG group, the better. <laughs> Yep, it, it's true. It's true. A lot of what we, for my my uh, Prospero books were based on. I, I joined an Amber role playing game, Nine Princes of Amber, and I wrote up a blurb about my character. And the game did not turn out to be very good. So I decided I was going to write about you know Miranda of Amber, and then I just decided I'd turn her into Shakespeare character instead. And I, you know, so I borrowed. I said, well. It'd be nice to give her some siblings, and John had a group of crazy guys he'd made up called the Prospero family. So I just adopted the Prospero family and put them in my book as, as Miranda's younger siblings. So that is, uh, was role-playing based. And then with the Books of Unexpected Enlightenment, both John and I just fell in love with this game. It, there was just certain things in it, a lot of which haven't come on stage yet in the books, but there's just certain things in it that we just thought was so amazing. The guy's idea of what he was doing and how he was interpreting things. 
uh, uh, it was just amazing. And so, you know, I kept thinking someone should write it up, and eventually I decided to do it. But one of the problems with it was, so he had run it as a Hogwarts game, but he had, following what I had done for my son, he had taken every character he liked and put them in Hogwarts. So, you know, 18-year-old Dr. Doom was in charge of Slytherin, and our, my character's roommate was Lucy Pevensey, and her familiar was this tiny lion named Aslan. So I had to make up new backgrounds for all the characters he stole, you know, to turn them into characters that, that belong to me. And I stole stuff from some, for some of them from yet other role-playing games. So, you know, it's really useful. <laughs> it's really I, useful to have all these games out there that you can just kind of draw on as fodder. I, I knew that Victor was a reference to Dr. Doom. Yeah, yeah. Vladimir Von Dredd is, it was Victor Von Doom in the original. Yep. And he has his own background, and, and you know, he's been in what he came from and everything now. But it was, I'll tell you, it was really hard trying to come up with someone who would compare in scope even slightly to Dr. Doom. So I spent a lot of time on that, and most of it hasn't come out yet, you know, who he was before he came. And for anyone who hasn't read the series, part of the setup is that Rachel Griffin is a little English girl at an American well, at a magic school that happens to be in America, it used to be a floating island. It's stuck in America at the moment. And she begins to discover that a lot of her fellow classmates used to be adults on other worlds and have been brought to where she is and turned into children who are going to school. And nobody knows why or what's going on or how this happened or anything. So part of the story is the mystery of her trying to figure out, you know, why are these people here and, and you know, who were they before they came here? And, you know, do they need to go back to whoever they were? Or is that life left behind? It, there's some indication that maybe there were major disasters and these people were, were saved at the last minute, so they may not have a life left behind. But uh, that was that was part of the, the... I mean, in the original game, that was part of the plot. That we, we knew these guys had come from outer places. So, But I didn't realize when I first started writing it up that it meant I had to, you know make up not one background, but like 15 different backgrounds. So I've never written a number of short stories that take place in the greater, the greater universe is called Sideria, it's the Sidereal universe. Uh, so I have out there four different short stories that uh, appear in, in, one of them was in Sci-Fi Journal, not the one you mentioned. One of them was in um, uh, an anthology called Victorian Venus, about uh, when Venus had been terraformed to be uh, uh, like old Victoria, Victorian times. One of them is in God Robot. I think that's the best of them. And one of them, and I have a Cthulian King Arthur story in hell in uh, Tales of the Once and Future King. So all those four stories are, are background stories for characters who appear either major stories or in some case minor stories. Uh, minor characters uh, who appear at Roanoke with with uh, Rachel. I hope to write some more too. I uh, I can empathize with that difficulty. I've run into a similar difficulty myself, so I understand what that's like having to. <laughs> uh, I mean, we can talk world building just a tiny bit, um, but we. Uh... Anyways, I understand that. I understand that difficulty. We have a question in the chat, by the way. Um, Simon Hogwood wants to know if Brunhilde, the cheerleader from California, is intended to 
uh, resemble Buffy. Yes. Buffy was one of the characters in the original game. And uh, so when I had to put her in, I changed her from Buffy Summers to Hildy Winters. And the reason that character is uh, uh, mentioned is that there is a new anthology that I almost just mentioned just coming out. It's, it's in Kickstarter now. It hasn't even been uh, done yet. Uh, that is uh, Steampunk Stories of the Afterlife. And I was a stretch goal. And I promised that if, uh, and, and they, they, they reached it, so I have to actually write it now, uh, that I would write a story about the background of, of one of Rachel's classmates uh, who hasn't really had a big part in the books, but, but she has a smaller part coming. You know, she'll be on stage more in a later book, uh, who used to be a Valkyrie. Uh, before she, that's her, her new background before, you know, once she stopped being Buffy, is that she was one of uh, Odin's Valkyries. And this particular short story that I'm going to write is uh, Hildegard versus the steam engine hounds of Hela. And it's about the Valkyrie and Hela fighting over who gets the souls of some of the, you know, Hela's decided she doesn't like all the, the heroes going up to Valhalla. She's trying to keep a few for herself. So <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to writing that. But that will be the fifth of the stories that are out in the background. And that, that anthology looks like it's going to be really fun. Some of the other short stories in it also are people, you know, whether it's a mummy unwinding party or all sorts of crazy, funny, fun things that people have come up with. And I think that anthology is going to be out for Balticon. So uh, it, it will be, I will post, you know, around when it's available. It, it sounds like it's going to be a really fun thing. But that will be another one in the same background. And uh, so it's been kind of fun whenever I have to do a short story to, to fill in these characters. So which, which made it, when I did the planetary stories for Mercury and Venus, I wrote Prospero stories. It kind of took me by surprise because I didn't have any particular need to write any more in the Prospero background. I uh, have three pages of notes on what would happen after the end of that series, and I have passed them on to A.M. Freeman, who is uh, a huge, huge Prospero fan, and that's how I met her, was that she wrote me a fan letter when she was 15. Uh, and so I, I'm hoping someday she will continue with the Prospero torch, and I, I will kind of be, you know, honest and advisor. But somehow these Prospero stories, stories showed up. There's, there's a scene in the last Prospero book where you find out that uh, Miranda's brother Erasmus, which is the brother she doesn't like and doesn't get along with, is on a first name basis with Hermes the Swift God. So I decided for Mercury, I would write about how they, that happened, how they came to know each other. So that's the story that's in the Mercury anthology. Um, so speaking of writing, um, there are several of those questions that interviewers hold in reserve to ask, but this one I'm actually kind of interested in. So it's not one of just those questions is actually a question that you know they're meant to spark conversation they're not necessarily something the interviewer is interested in himself he just wants to keep the conversation flowing so he drops out one of those questions well this is uh is actually one of those questions but it's one of the ones i want to i'm interested in i want an answer to so it is as sincere those questions um if there were one thing that you would caution new or aspiring writers against, what would it be? Outlining. I am the only person I know who warns about the dangers of outlining. Now, I want to start by saying it doesn't mean some people don't outline really well and do really well with it, but I have seen the following thing happen, and I think people need to be wary about it. I've seen a number of friends, and it happened to me too. It happened to me twice. 
come up with a great idea, start writing, write an outline, and at the moment they finish their outline, their idea is now all laid down and they stop writing. It's no longer interesting. There's no longer any imagination in it. And I've seen some really nice books, you know, better written than a lot of stuff out there, just stop because this happened. And it happened to me, too, both with the Prospero book. I, I, I finished the outline about five years before I went back to it and finished it. And it happened to me. With the, I have a – we had another role-playing background called the Corruption Campaign that I have written – I've started a book in that 14 times. And I have a full finished book called Uncross the Stars. But it's just sitting around because I don't have time to work on the next one yet. And there's no point in putting it out there and just, you know, the, the follow-up. So the book is just sitting around. But uh, one of the versions of that, too, the first time I actually got finally to that version of it, I, I got down, I started, I actually got some work done, I got my outline, again, same thing happened, it froze up. And what I've noticed for myself is I can make an outline once I'm more than halfway through, once the ideas are there and all I'm doing is seeing how to pull them together. But I can't make an outline in the early part when... I'm limiting my imagination by doing that. So I don't want to tell anybody not to outline because some people outline and it comes up great. But I do want to say, if you make an outline and you stop writing, tear it up. And it's just a piece of information. And as I said, I've noticed not just me. I've noticed with a number of writers. And I don't hear anybody saying it. You know, I don't hear, And I think of how sad there that there are these wonderful books out there that aren't reaching us because... Nobody said to them, look, you have to tear it up and, and, and bring in some new inspiration. That will overcome your writer's block, and, and you'll find it fun again. So that's my bit of writing advice that I, you know, I like to give that I don't hear anybody else giving. I, I can give uh, one other bit of writing advice, too. And this is I, I edit, and I 90 to 95% of what I say to the authors I edit is exactly the same thing. The other part is something different. It's particular to that author. You know, you need to do this. This needs to be changed. Or, you know, this is great. Bring this out. Whatever. But 95% of what I say is you have to put on the beginning of your story what your character's goal is. Most of the characters, they don't really make them up until they get to the, towards the end. And the really exciting part that makes you care about the character is at the end. And in the meantime, the poor reader is slogging through not caring because they're not seeing the character that you're writing. If you put a goal on in the beginning, you get two things happen. Number one, the character cares about something, so the reader cares. It's that simple. If your character is really excited or really fearful or really, really wants something, the reader knows what to want. So now they're rooting for the character. If the character doesn't want anything, you can't root for them because you don't know what they want. And two, Having a goal acts like a little signpost to help the reader as the story goes along. Like, you know, partway through, you, you stop every few, you know, few chapters and kind of hint how you're going with that goal. And it streamlines things. And it really works. I'll, I'll tell you how I know it works. So I've written now like eight books. And uh, occasionally people complain about my books that they're kind of meandery, you know, even though I know they're really, you know, on target and I know exactly where I'm going. Apparently, in some of the early Rachel Griffin books, I didn't, I didn't focus as well. But my latest one, book four, I got about two-thirds through, and I realized that I couldn't reach the end I wanted to reach. It was going to be too long. I had to cut it. So I picked a scene that was going to be a minor scene. I turned it into a major climax. 
And I went back and I decided to follow my own instructions. So I set a goal related to this climax. I revisited it four or five times during the, the story. And I keep seeing these. And keep in mind, this is a book that was headed towards a completely different end, of which it has scenes from a role-playing game that I'm trying to strain together that I, at the last minute, had to change my where I was going with them. And I've seen all these reviews saying that this is the most focused of my books. And I thought, you know, it took me like two hours of work. But it was really worth it for those two hours. <laughs> because the reader needs some sense of where they're going. They need to know, you know, is my, is my, my hero who I'm caring about, are they getting closer to what they hope they're going to achieve? Are they farther from it? They can't hope and be upset and happy and fearful and sad unless they know what the character wants. So, so that's my other piece of advice. And I learned that by being an editor, by you know, looking through it, getting and noticing that this was the same advice I was giving over. And then I turned around and used it myself, and it really paid off. So I, that's the other piece of, evidence, of uh, advice I give to, you know, even to those who, who don't need the outlining advice, is to, you know, write your book, look at where your character ends, think of a goal your character could have, that's related to where they're going, but not necessarily spot on. You know, it could be something where it seems like it's going to end up somewhere else, but as long as it's actually fulfilled by where it does end, or it could be what they're actually shooting for in the book. And then just put that on right at the beginning. Have them want that, and then stop a couple times to, like, let the reader know if they're, you know, where you're, where you're going. And it's, it's easy. It only takes a little while, you know, probably no more than a day or two, possibly an hour. And it gives the reader that sense of a book that, go somewhere and, is, and they can follow and they don't feel lost. So those are my two bits of writer wisdom. I All love right. that. Uh, that actually reminds me of, that That reminds me of an interview uh, with Quentin Tarantino that puts that whole thing in another light. Uh, it was around when Inglorious Bastards came out. And that was of course about uh, this woman getting revenge on the Nazis for killing her family and so on and so forth. And someone asked, and for, for those of you who have seen his movies, he's not a great writer. Uh, he does great things with the dialogue and film, uh, but his stories are pretty simple. And, and the person asked, you know, why did you do this story? And, and his response is, well, a revenge story is just sort of an easy plot that I can hang the rest of the story onto. You know, I can hang the rest of the film onto a really simple revenge plot. And it makes even more sense in the light of your advice which is a revenge plot is a very straightforward goal that you you identify with with the protagonist and at the end of the story they usually have fulfilled that goal by getting their revenge right really simple yeah exactly i mean now you it's the the viewer comes in they immediately understand wanting to get the guy who got their family they he immediately has a goal he has you know and then he can as you say he can hang the rest of the story on this, you know, rather straightforward uh, goal, and uh, you know, if you have that kind of story, it, it's it, it's easy. You know, certain types like like you know, mystery. Certain types of stories, it's really easy to to do that, and it's wonderful. And and he's probably right. That's a good. You know, if he wants to make a story that's you know dramatic, but he doesn't have to worry too much about the actual basics. That's that's a great way to do it. Uh, often in our field, it's a little harder because. 
we tried to do really unusual. I mean, Brian Niemeyer's book is about space pirates going to hell. It, you know, nobody, you know, it's exciting and interesting and strange, but it takes a little while to, to, you know, for him initially to look back and go, well, you know, how do I get the reader along this cool ride? Um, and, 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 and that's a really my good stuff, point. Because... Which, as I said, is a bunch of separate scenes that I'm trying to put together into a plot. It has a long-term plot, but getting them to flow quickly from one scene to another is, is a challenge. Go ahead. Oh, I was just responding to what you said about Brian because that was one of the only complaints about his first book that resonated with me is that it was hard to get into the characters, which he fixed right away in Soul Dancer. Yeah, yeah, and and we, I mean, we worked on that a lot in the first book, and I think you know it was a lot better. You know, the, we brought out a lot of what was good about them, but the characters he he had were just some very kind of mysterious folks. And, in, you know, in, when his his second set of characters that came on stage in the next book, I think were a lot kind of closer to the audience, if you understand what I mean by that. Uh, they were younger, and, and you kind of knew more about them, while the, the earlier set, part of the, the interest of them was that they were a bit mysterious. So it was hard for the reader to... It, it's neat to have a character you don't know and you're trying to find out about, but it's harder to connect to such a character. So it's kind of a trade-off there. So... Yeah, but you're right. Yeah, he, he didn't really turn that around as far as the accessibility um, of his characters made them very likable. All right, we are running down towards the end of our hour. Um, John, is there anything else you want to say before we kick off? Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, I'm glad you came on the show. And, Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be asked. I was so delighted. You know, I, I don't know if I quite got to the squeeing stage, but I was really happy when you guys asked me. <laughs> so thank you, and you know, it's just it's fun to come and talk about these things. Well, and people should know too um, that last year when we had our um, when we had the geek gab on the books that uh, Brian and you and Nick Cole did all on the same show uh, and me, it was an idea I had, um, and. In order to make the idea work on the show, uh, I needed to have a couple of guests come on who knew what they were talking about because it was something that, you know, it was Brian's show anyway. On the books is Brian's show. So I called him. I said, I pitched him the idea for the show. And he said, yeah, let's do that. I said, okay, I've got a couple people in mind. Let me get a hold of them and see if they can come on the show in like three days, I think, was, was their time frame. And so I called Nick Cole and I called you um, or emailed or whatever uh, and invited you both to come on the show, and both of you were able to come on. So um, it was you know, an honor. It was fun. It was a really fun show. I was I was just very very uh, grateful to both of you on such short notice coming on the show because and, and here's the thing too, the show I didn't have anything to do or promote, but both of you uh, brought to the show a bunch of information that. Um, the reason why I did it was to bring information out for anybody listening who's going to be a writer. Uh, and when both of you came on, you both had great stories. You both had a lot of information. And so it was not only gracious of you guys to come on, both of you did a, did a great job on the show. And so I was, I was so very uh, grateful on short notice. So um, I just want to say thank you uh, for You're welcome. You're welcome. It was, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, all right, folks. Uh, I'm trying to think. Other than my normal spiel, do I have anything 
um, to say. Well, well, I, I, think think... To, I think you wanted to say how awesome the chat was, and thanks for everybody for coming down and <laughs> listening live. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Um, also, there are links to the free story, uh, HMS Mangled Treasure, The Rescue of Mr. Spaghetti. In the description, there are links to Jaggi's blog, to the Rachel Griffin series, the Prosperous Children series, and Planetary uh, Fiction. Links to all of them in the description of the video, as well as links to us here at Geek Gab and my uh, regular blog column on Castalia House. By the way, folks, we're available, if you're catching this someplace else, we're available on GeekGab, uh, YouTube.com slash GeekGab. We're also available on SoundCloud, the iTunes Store, and the uh, Amazon Play Store. Or not the Amazon, excuse me, the uh, Google Play Store for all of your Android devices. So we're available in those three places. Just do a search for... Geek Gab. By the way, I was uh, SoundCloud was our big thing because that's when uh, we were we started going out as a podcast on iTunes and other places. We are almost in a, within a couple of months of having been there for a hundred episodes. Uh, most of the show now has been broadcast on iTunes and through SoundCloud. If you can believe that, very nice. I think we started with episode 49, um, and today was episode 132. So we are wow. almost 100 episodes past when we started doing the show through iTunes. It is so cool that you guys keep this up. Uh, I always hear very, I mean, I, I talk to people who, who really like it. So I, I know that it's, you know, not just me. <laughs> um, thanks for tuning in, folks. We are signing off for today because. We all have things that we have to go do. We would love to spend more time with you, but we can't. We are signing off for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.